0: Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations.
1: This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Dare to brew different with new and exciting hot varieties from Hopsteiner's industry-leading breeding program. Varieties like Sultana, Lotus, Bravo, Altus, and Contessa are now available in lupulin pellet form, packing more flavor and aroma per pellet. Discover more at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to BrewNinja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code Ninja 21 Wow,
2: we're making all these hazy IPAs. Hazies are so cool. What if we made a beer that was like the antithesis of hazy IPA? I'm going to have this hazy IPA that's super juicy, big mosaic, citric kind of thing on the menu. I want to have another beer that's sitting right next to it for the person that hates that beer.
3: Other ways to, you know, get that dry hop character in a different style and just have it really presented differently. I think it's really a lot of fun.
0: This week on the show, what the heck is cold IPA?
2: Uh, Hi there, this is Kevin Davey with
3: Wayfinder Beer. I'm the um, head of brewing and um, innovation at Wayfinder. Hi there, everybody. It's uh, John Harris here with Ecliptic Brewing in Portland, Oregon. I'm the brewmaster owner.
4: Yeah, hey, this is Andy Morrison. Uh, I'm the sales engineer with um, Precision Fermentation based in Durham, North Carolina.
0: Okay. So we're doing something today that we don't get to do all that often. We're talking about the birth of a new beer style. This one is called cold IPA. Kevin, it sounds like this is your baby. And then we've also got the legendary John Harris here with us because you guys brewed a cold IPA collaboration at John's place. We're going to talk about what makes cold IPA, cold IPA and get into the details of the various versions you guys have brewed thus far. Before we do that, please tell me this isn't just like when I was traveling in Ireland in the early 2000s and all of the pubs had Guinness and Guinness extra cold. <laughs> uh,
2: no, it's, I, I hope it's not that. Um, that was something that kind of hit Europe, right? Like Heineken had a Heineken zero and they had...
0: Yes, that, I don't know what that was. I, I never figured it out.
2: It was a frozen tap tower. That's all yeah. it was. So it served at zero <laughs> degrees centigrade. <laughs> That's uh that's innovation and, uh, Ryan Heinske, but I guess, Yeah, I don't know, no, we were, uh, so with cold IPA, I, fr- frankly, it started as just this thing that we were trying to make at wayfinder and make it different than our regular West coast IPA. When we opened wayfinder, um, hazy IPA had, or new England IPA had just kind of gotten popular, um, in the Portland region and people were making it. We knew we had to make one. So we started making one. We also made a regular West Coast IPA called Doomtown. Uh, but I wanted to make another IPA, another type of IPA that kind of, you know, we're a logger first brewery, a logger centric brewery. So I'm like, well, what would a logger brewer make? How would they make IPA? And I kind of came up with this. Um, trying to take some of the elements of West Coast IPA and take them to the extreme. So when it comes to dryness, making it drier than even normal West Coast IPA, lack of caramel malt, um, the big hop aroma, but also really satisfying and clean. And we, we tried to achieve that mainly by using um, an adjunct mash bill and then using a lager yeast and fermenting it warm and um, then hopping it much like a West Coast.
0: All right. John, from a sensory point of view, how would you describe what's different about cold IPA versus any other
3: IPA? Well, I mean, the, the biggest difference is the, you know, the lager yeast um, used, and when we did our cold, lab, we used a pretty neutral lager yeast, so we didn't get a lot of you know, off-flavor, not off-flavors, but you know, like sulfur, in particular, in lager strains, it takes a while to reduce the aging. Um, I mean, I, I, aromatically, I think they're pretty comparable to an IPA myself, um, aside from, the, you know, like I said, the, the lager yeast characteristics that come through.
0: Okay, let's jump right into how it's made. And for each step of the process, let's talk about both how Wayfinder does it, as well as what you guys did for the collaboration, because I think that'll give listeners some good perspective for how they might go about giving this a shot in their own breweries. So let's start off with the Grist. Um as you just alluded to this is not your average IPA grist bill, right?
2: No, and um so this is kind of this harkens back to the fact that like at Wayfinder we were trying to do something different with grist in particular. Like when we opened this Logger brewery, we installed a decoction kettle on a small scale, a little 10 barrel system. And we really play around with a lot of decoction at Wayfinder. Um that was something that we invested in early to say, hey, this is how we're going to differentiate our Logger beers by um doing Uh, lots of step mashing but also boiling a lot of malt um after about a a year into it a year and a half into it um i was like well we already have this decoction kettle what if we did cereal mashes because um and because why not you know we're craft brewers but you know this is a piece of american history that i'm very interested in and i feel like when i was a home brewer and, and 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 when i was first starting out my brewing career um adjunct American lager was a big no, no. And I feel like it's time for us to kind of reclaim that, you know, like Amen. I, 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 I described it to the staff as like, Hey, you know what? We're going to fly our, our, uh, we're going to fly our planes into the death star. We're going to get the plans uh, for how they make this beer. And then we're going to make it our own because you know, this is a beer style that people do love. But I remember reading a Browell's article uh, 10 years ago and it was tracking ibus in american lagers over from the 70s 80s 90s and it was like in the 70s the average bu in an american lager was like 20 and then it was like 15 then it was like 12 and by the time you got to like 20, not 2009 when i was reading this article it was like seven was the average american lager and i'm like oh it didn't even have to be this way like american lager can be such an interesting but it, i feel like and this is my opinion um, I feel like it has been dumbed down um, because the focus groups and stuff like that have and and the admin of our world, but not the brewers making these decisions are trying to make this trying to make American lagers more and more appealing to a, a bigger and bigger audience instead of making the beer better tasting by itself and just kind of rolling with it and I think that that's something that craft beer can do better um, than very large breweries so that's what I did I wanted to um we ended up making a adjunct rice lager actually using rice flour and then we ended up using rice flakes and different types of um raw rice and then processing them as a decoction into american barley and then fermenting out a regular american lager. I think we did a great job. It's a beer called number 6. Um it comes in 6 packs, so if you see it at 666, six, you know, cuz we're a vaguely sinister brewery, just so everyone knows. Uh, <laughs> after we made that beer once, I was just like, well, this is cool. But I, I remembered uh, somebody telling me, I think, like telling me a story about Mitch Steele and about how when he was working at Budweiser, Mitch, you'd have to let me know if this is true. I have no idea. But um, when you're doing high gravity lager brew, like 15 Plato ABI beer, or even like when I was on the Coors tour a couple of weeks ago, they're, you know, they're fermenting all of this beer at 15 Plato. And. Some of the guys are like, yeah, when it's in the, when it's in the, in the lager tank at 15 Play-Doh, that beer's pretty freaking good. And I was like, I thought about that for a while. I'm like, okay, well, yeah, I, I think I've, I've never tried that. I've always wanted to see what that before the dilution down to, you know, 4.5 or 5.1 or whatever alcohol um, American lager is. I would really like to see what that beer tasted like. And then I'm like, well, wait a second. What if we just brewed it? And then what if we made it an IPA?
3: <laughs> so
2: that's kind of where my mind was going with it. Um, but the, the other thing that I really wanted to do is not make it a, you know, a five week lager IPA, because I don't think that, I don't think that, um, cold fermentation and cold maturation is really great for hop expression. I think that you actually need to, uh, dry hop a bit warm and, um, kind of get the beer in and out uh, with relative speed so that the hops are presenting really well when the consumer gets it. Um, so that that's where we, and we also have more lager yeast than we can deal with. So like, it doesn't matter if we ferment warm and never harvest off these beers. So um, this was the other way that we're like, Oh, we can just use our house yeast instead of having to go get Chico from John Harris or Chico from uh, somebody else. We can just make these, these very clean fermenting beers, but ferment them warm and kind of like try to get a Chico approach where it's there's a bit of fruit to it, but and it ferments fast, but it doesn't have that. I think fermenting colder will, it will get you a little bit more of that as that lager SO2 thing that I don't think really works really well with IPAs in general. And also, I don't think that if you are dry hopping at like 49 Fahrenheit, I don't think that you're going to get some of those more um, warm dry hop hop aromas so that was the approach let's make this beer that uh is kind of a split between american lager and west coast ipa and taking our favorite elements of both um the other thought was well we're making all these hazy ipas hazies are so cool what if we made a beer that was like the antithesis of hazy ipa just to be kind of uh just to different be a contrarian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. just to be the contrarian if if if, yeah. if, if Anybody remembers me as anything is, I'm a contrarian. So I I wanted to have something that was definitely contrasting. You know, like I'm going to have this hazy IPA that's super juicy, big mosaic, citric kind of thing on the menu. I want to have another beer that's sitting right next to it for the person that hates that beer. You know, and so that's that was the other idea.
0: Okay, cool. So go back to the grist though for it in a little more detail. So you said you started off using um, rice and then rice flakes, I believe. Is talk more about that and sort of you know give us some percentages. Where did you land for your Um, your ideal cold IPA grist bill
2: Um, for using whole bags of grain. I think we're at 27% um, grist. I'm sorry. um, Rice adjunct or corn adjunct. Um, We have since moved on to corn just for uh, price saving. um, And also because rice just went through the roof for us Um, right now, if we're trying to buy rice flakes, I think that they're about 20 cents more than Maris Otter. So we, we wow. were just like, well, this doesn't make sense. We're throwing a lot of hops at this beer anyway. If we want, And if we're going to get a similar thing, what we're trying to get is like a very clean um, flavor and a very clean mouthfeel. And I think that you get I, I can I definitely think that rice and corn each have their own separate types of mouthfeel when it comes to American lager. I prefer rice, and I'm trying to get back to getting rice and finding a different supplier where we can get something that's affordable. But yeah, we were doing about 30%. We started using rice flour, um, and we were getting that from a food supplier. Um, it was really dusty and hazardous, so we only did that a couple of times. We moved on to flakes, which were more expensive, um, but we still did um, the cereal decoction boil. and We did that for a while just just because we knew it worked really well. Uh, we got good um, extract. We've got um, good fermentability, um, but flaked flaked rice is marketed as something that is pre gelatinized, and we should be able to get to those um, starches pretty easily. We had a couple of problems with a couple of different suppliers of rice flakes that um, we did, tried to do a single infusion mashing with it. Well, step mashing, it, never taking it to uh, boiling of the rice, and. Um, This is another reason we don't use rice. Um, What had happened is that it was iodine black the whole time. We matched for about three hours. And then at at the three-hour mark with it still not converting, we went over to a local um, uh, gluten-free brewery and borrowed some amylase, alpha amylase, to see if we could uh, boost the enzyme load. And uh, we did that for another hour, and it never converted. My theory, my hypothesis is that even though it is marketed as a pre-gelatinized rice flake, that it wasn't properly gelatinized so that we just didn't have access to the starch because we couldn't get through. Makes sense. Uh, Yeah, and so it needed, because we could actually take the same product, boil it, and then it would convert just with regular bar.
0: I know some of the haters out there have said, hey, this is stupid. This is just IPL with a different name, but it's not. IPL isn't brewed with adjuncts. What else is different here versus IPL grist?
3: The old style of um, IPA back when IPL first launched was um, light orange to orange colored. Um, and those flavors just, um, I think those caramel balls sometimes clashed with the lager yeast, to be honest with you. So I think that um, going with the adjunct and going with just a nice pills ball Lighter colored malt, um, you get just a cleaner flavor when you ferment without lager yeast at the warmer temperature.
0: Kevin, most brewers listening to this probably don't have the equipment to mimic your mashing process, but I'm sure folks would like to hear more about it nonetheless. Is there anything else you want to say about sort of your your mashing process using adjuncts, you know, in, in a brew where you can do that?
2: I mean, if, if if you have a mash mixer, you can do it. It just takes a very long time because you're going to have to do it first, and then mash your two row on top. Um, we did it once with Burial Beer out of North Carolina. We made one, and it just was a very long brew day. We also did one with Modern Times, um, but the thing that I would I, I need to to tell everyone who actually wants to use raw rice or raw corn, not a flake product, not a syrup. Um, is that you need to be using an American two-row malt. Now, a lot of American barleys are born and bred and made for you know the AMBA guidelines, which are much different than um, the guidelines for German and French and stuff like that kind of malt. Um, the reason being is uh, the people who have really led the charge on that kind of malting are the bigger brewers, and they're looking for a higher enzyme package. And frankly, I think a lot of those malts, not all of them, and I don't want to make this an advertisement, but um, a lot of those malts are born and bred to have adjunct. Um, the European barleys are born and bred to never have adjunct or, or very, very have little adjunct, if at all. Um, so when, you, when when I'm thinking about this, I'm trying to make an American beer um, that is, is very heritage. I, you know, we use an American uh, Pilsner malt. Uh, I think it's a blend of Pinnacle and Metcalf. Uh, they're both very high enzyme. They're high Kolbach index um, and uh, high protein. So what we're really doing is we're using that rice and corn to balance our our um, Pilsner malt or our pale malt to make the beer whole. And I think that a lot of um, I mean, ethically, this is why those those American two rows are grown. American two row actually mimicking American six row these days. Um, where um, you actually are looking for a bit of adjunct to make that beer rounded and really clean and easy drinking by itself. Um, whereas the European stuff is more born and bred to be all malt beer.
0: All right. Um, John, I assume you don't have a cereal cooker in your brewery. What did you use for the adjunct on the collaboration? How much did you use? And how close or different were those results to Kevin's?
3: Okay, yeah, no, we have a, we're a single infusion um mash brewery. Um we used corn in the collab. It was about just under twenty percent um corn. Uh to, and and we used um a newer Great Western uh, Pilsner malt called um or called um with Super Pils malt. Uh that was the grist makeup and um and we didn't have any problem with the with the corn converting it in, in the mash tun. Um Converted just fine It was pre-gelatinized really pre-gelatinized <laughs> but um but it, it ran off pretty easily and um turned out pretty good
0: did you consider any other adjuncts like dextrose or corn syrup or rice salads or anything like that and how did you land land on
3: uh, i assume it's flaked corn how did you land on that oh just discussions with kevin and uh here um and we were Laying out the brew, just um, took a lot of Kevin's recommendations because he had actually, you know, done a couple of these before we did our collaboration. So um, uh, he recommended corn over rice, so we just went with that.
0: Having done it once, would you? Is there anything you'd change in regards to the grist or mashing if you were to do this collaboration brew all over again, or did it work out kind of w- the way you were hoping?
3: Um, actually, the beer turned out really, uh, really good. I mean, we, we did a trial brew in our two barrel pilot brewery and made some tweaks and um and you uh, know just some of the uh, dry hopping we changed a little bit from the production batch from the pilot batch um now ironically as i i actually texted kevin the other day and said hey you want to do the collab again next year and he said sure so we're, uh, i said we need to make it better so we haven't really had a chance to <laughs> haven't had a chance to talk about how we're going to do that but uh um i'm looking forward to doing it again because uh, it was really well received and um and it actually ended up winning with four months of age i want to I think it was a bronze medal at the Oregon Bear Awards, which is kind of crazy. It, it held up that long, so it's pretty awesome.
0: Nice, nice. Um, well, Kevin already answered it. My next question was going to be about um, uh, specifically targeting a uh, old school North American pills rather than a calmer European pills. So um, I think we're good on that.
2: Oh, one of the things I did want to mention about um, American two row is that um, if you if you are using the wrong kind of malt, you might not get conversion um, because Rice and corn just, you know, don't really have a lot of enzyme potential. And um, if anybody's brewing these um, at at their breweries, grab a bottle of iodine from the lab, and I would test it before you ever run off. Um, just because using the adjuncts at this high level, it's one of the things that um, I think is interesting that every time we would do a collab uh, making a beer like this, I would always bring iodine to the brewery (laughs) and you know sure enough like some of the times we're like oh we're not a conversion let's wait a little longer and they're like oh we stopped doing the iodine test because we always get conversion i'm like that's great yeah
0: (laughs) until you until you don't you know like
2: (laughs) (laughs) so like i think it's really important to 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 do that um if you're going to attempt one of these make sure you do get conversion if you don't you're not going to get obviously you're not going to get as much utilization out of you're not going to get as much um um, you're going to get more starch um, and you're going to leave a lot in the spent grain, but also you're going to have haze issues, which is what you're trying to avoid. Um, these beers we typically make pretty clear.
0: I think I've told this story before, but I, I got burned by that years ago. I had, same thing. I'd stopped doing it because, like, when's the last time it didn't? You know, it didn't um, show that it was converted. And uh, I as I ended up getting a load of wheat malt, uh, and we were brewing uh, Hefeweizen, and it was um, I hadn't gotten a hold of this COA yet and looked at it. And it was like you know the same damn wheat malt we've been using for like ten years or whatever, and um, for whatever reason we got a batch of it where the alpha amylase was like ten or something. Yeah, it was like super low. And, um, and yeah, I mean that yeah, happens, sure and
2: that's yeah. especially. I mean, we're only a little ten barrel system, so like the worst comes to worst, we might have to dump twenty barrels of beer. You know, I the bigger you get, the more you should be doing it. <laughs> but um, right, right, we make a lot of we make a lot of a. Uh, decocted beers and the whole purpose of decoction is is boiling the grain and you know what boiling does it destroys enzymes so making sure that we have um conversion is is a huge part of our our profile so like we we do it on every beer um so i think that yeah. that's really important
0: all right tell me about the kettle hops um what what's your uh what's your strategy for kettle hop additions for cold ipa
2: so for our cold ipa Um, we're trying to actually build a very high level of bitterness before we even get any, uh, late hop additions. We're trying to hop this much more like a West coast. I think that the trend has been to get, um, to get the BUs out of the kettle, lower pHs, lower the whirlpool or do a cold or a cool whirlpool. So that, uh, because of the hop load that we're going to add anyway, that everybody feels like they're going to get enough bitterness from that. That's not our approach. My thought is with the gravity being as high as it is, if we can get to 35, 40 BUs before we even add any aroma or final hopping, then um, getting to that first 40 is the is the easy part. Getting above that is the hard part. So um, frankly, I don't even calculate bitterness units the way um, a lot of people are used to doing that where the 10 minute edition might be like where the 10% utilization and the whirlpool might be 5% utilization. So we don't even really kind of think of it that way. We try to target 35, 40 BUs with a, a clean hop. Like we use German Magnum typically, and then also using um, an isomerized hop compound. Um, I, we're using Barth-Hass, uh flex for this. So a combination of both, we want a little bit of vegetative matter so that it uh, doesn't, you know, it, it aids with it not boiling over, um, and then after that, we're hitting it at a ten-minute edition, and then also a whirlpool edition. So we're we're adding um, kind of a blend of um, we're using mosaic centennial at ten minute, and then also at whirlpool. I believe that some of those hops you need to boil to get some of the hop aroma, and so that's also kind of like our West Coast approach. Um, so yeah, it's not. It's not a massive hop addition, all at the end, cold with low pH. We're doing it more traditional.
0: All right. So once again, sort of the opposite of the of the hazy stuff. John, anything different about um your kettle hopping strategy on the on the um collaboration or pretty much the same stuff?
3: Yeah, we we also use Magnum in the in the bitterness up front. Um sizable charge is eleven and a half alpha. We, we actually threw uh, fifteen pounds at it, which is a bit you know for uh that's not very um new age (laughs) ipa making anymore but um i think we ended up with about 55 right 55 ibu total after the whole thing was said and done um most of that you know with large was a large whirlpool charge too so uh, we did get all of it out of the kettle but a lot of it
0: Okay, so in the, just so I don't, people may not know how, what your system size is, so put that in like pounds per barrel perspective. For oh, this.
3: sure. Okay, Um, that would be, it's a 30 barrel system, so half pound per barrel Um, in, this, okay. in, the, uh, in the in the kettle boil for 60.
2: I would like to put out the uh, thought that um, with with the whole New England IPA and people going with low bitterness, high residual sweetness of final beer. Part of the whole antithesis of wet, of uh, New England IPA, that cold IPA can be, is that it's incredibly dry, but also that it's incredibly bitter. Um, we're trying to get the bitterness very, very high. More like, um, to me, the people that really made that really dry, really bitter thing are more San Diego style. I'm not really a huge fan of the water profile down there, personally. But, um, you know, the Green Flashes, the Russian Rivers, the Firestone Walkers, uh, a bunch of other people that I should be including in that. Well, well the, the southern california crew has been doing those really high bitterness beers really really well and i've always i've always really appreciated that and so that was kind of my my thought with that i think that here in portland and in the northwest the ipas we make are a little bit more approachable i mean i think of us as kind of uh you know delicate forest creatures we don't want things that have too much sharp edges that's more the the desert folk. So (laughs) I think that it's kind of fun because like what we're trying to do is uh, what I was trying to do is make something that is, is, is markedly different than what people in Portland were used to. And I think that we achieved. Coming up. You saw people that like just really hated the term cold IPA. And I wanted to address that.
0: I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going – And that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support.
1: Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com slash mbaa. Master Brewers Podcast is brought to you by RAR North Star Pills. A new base malt to set your compass by. RAR North Star Pils is crafted for brewers looking for a domestic pilsner malt with low color and low modification. North Star Pils carries overtones of honey and sweetbread, supported by flavors and aromas of hay and nutty character. Suitable for any beer style, but particularly craft-brewed versions of classic lagers. Let RAR North Star Pils guide your craft by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact us at 1-800-374-2739.
0: And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Carolinas meets in Greenville, October 1st and 2nd. District Mid-South meets virtually October 14th. District Northwest will hold its annual meeting in Hood River, October 22nd and 23rd. There's one big meeting that's on my calendar. I hope it's on yours. The 2021 Master Brewers Conference will be October 28th through the 30th in Cleveland. Registration is open now. And don't forget the world-famous Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course begins October 31st. I'm looking forward to the District Mid-Atlantic meeting the weekend of November 12th in Virginia Beach. Hope to see you there. Check out the full
1: calendar of events at MBAA.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Master Brewers offers a wide range of resources for breweries of all sizes and stages. Stay current on the latest scientific advancements, technical information, and industry trends by joining Master Brewers. Join today and use offer code BEER2021 to save 20% on dues now through December 31st, 2021. Master Brewers, united we brew. Oh
0: yeah, one more thing. I hope you'll join me on Thursday, October 28th in Cleveland for a live version of Ask the Brewmasters. Panelists include soon-to-be Master Brewers President Andy Tavikram from Market Garden Breweries, Travis Audette from Anheuser-Busch InBev, and Vinny Chalurzo from Russian River. If you haven't already registered for the conference, use the link in the show notes to register now. Now, back to the show. All right, let's get into fermentation. So, uh, which yeast strain should we be considering to brew cold IPA? And is there anything unique in regards to the fermentation strategy?
2: Uh, we, I mean, we use the uh, most popular yeast, lager yeast strain in the world, 3470. Uh, you can get it from y Yeast or Imperial or White Labs. We get ours from BSI. Uh, there was also a dry version of it. Um, the what we'll end up doing, we end up brewing this beer over two days. So we'll do um, a ten barrel batch and then another ten barrel batch, just because it's easier for us to achieve that because it's such a long mash. And what we'll do is we'll send the first um, the first stream with yeast at about 49 degrees and then we'll match it on the next day so we're actually starting this beer really really cold and then we're fermenting at 65 so we'll have a huge ramp up and um it has i mean it's it's at 65 on day two no problem um it gets there and it ferments really really well um
0: it, that sounds like from your am i remembering that you d- uh, did some time at gordon Biersch? that sounds like a very gordon Biersch <laughs> strategy uh sure
2: yeah i mean yeah. yeah, I worked at Chuckanut too, so Chuckanut and Gordon beer I, I consider myself a, a lager train brewery first. So um Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Starting cold and letting it uh rise up is I think important for almost all beer, but especially beer. All
0: right, give us some more details about that fermentation.
2: Uh so we uh we cool into the tank at 49 degrees and then we set the fermenter at 65. So we'll ferment at 65. Um day six or seven, it will be pretty much at three play-doh and then we'll dry, we'll get the yeast off of whatever yeast is at the bottom. We'll get the yeast off of it and dry hop it carefully and then put the tank at 15 PSI and let it ferment at 15 PSI and in in a process like a Spunding or a Kreuzsending style. Um, And we get a lot of the carbonation through, through that process. We don't get all of it like we do with our lagers only because the fermentation temperature is still at 65. If if we did have it colder, we could probably get more of the CO2 would stay in the solution. But um, we also are kind of inducing hop creep at that point. We know that some of the hops that we've been using are creating hop creep and we're trying to get we're trying to do with hop creep what it will early instead of having to deal with it later. So that's why we kind of uh, dry hop early. And, uh, so if it's, if, if we started at 15 Plato and it's at about three Plato, when we dry hop, it'll go down to 1.8 in a filtered final. Um,
0: yeah. I imagine that the hop creeps probably kind of your friend here, right? Because you, you, you want a very
1: dry. Yeah.
2: Huge friend. And, um, the other point I would like to make is to try to get the alcohol kind of high. I think a lot of people are going to go, Oh, well, let's get this at like, it'd be more drinkable if it were 6.2%. I think it's not true. Like West coast IPA. You want this at around seven percent, maybe even a little higher. The because it's so incredibly dry and, and bitter that you need that alcohol sweetness to balance, and so that was a big part of what we did.
0: Okay, back on the um, fermentation strategy. I, is it safe to assume like kind of a normal pitch rate, or is there anything uh, or any is there anything abnormal or you know unique about the fermentation, or is this just kind of a standard? lager fermentation
2: you know we target um a million cells per milliliter so um per degree play-doh right something like that yeah so uh, it could go you know usually we're you know our, our our original cold ipa is 15 play-doh so if we're at 14 to 16 million cells we're totally cool with that um we aerate with sterile air which is very common in lager brewing um not very common in most craft brewing um, I think that harkens back to um the Rohanskebut where you can't add exogenous oxygen and you have to just get the air from the air. I don't know why that would be a thing, but it is a thing and i've I've noticed that lager beers that are um aerated that are not over aerated can end up being a little bit cleaner. I think that um thirty four um does a little bit better with a little bit l- uh less oxygen It's easier not to goof it up by um adding too much oxygen. So I, I suggest sterile air if anybody's doing it. And um Yeah. Also another reason to cool in cold because you get a little bit more oxygen if you are using sterile air.
0: That's right. Okay, we've also got Andy here from Precision Fermentation, one of the critical sponsors who keep this show alive. Andy, your instrumentation has a lot of data on the collaboration cold IPA brew do you want to mention anything about the fermentation profile relative to similar styles that you've tracked? Did anything stand out?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was, um, you know, a big piece of, of when I realized that we had, that John had plugged in one of our monitors for the collaboration beer, you know, I reached out to him to kind of talk to him about it and, and, and ended up winding Kevin into the conversation to, to, kind of learn more about the style and learn more about what I was looking at because we saw, um, you know, everything that that Kevin's just talked about, right? Like the, the, I think the knockout temp running into the tank was at about 52 degrees. Um, and then we watched it rise over like the next four days, um, uh, before it finally hit the, um, the sort of jacket temps at about 65. So we're watching it bounce between like 66 and 65 degrees. It's like jackets kicked on and off. Um, and, and so it just started raising questions about like, you know, you know, obviously that's, that was a different method than we had seen before with IPAs um, looking at just kind of the, the slowness of the um, uh, oxygen uptake. Cause a lot of times we see for like a standard ale, we see the, the, um, oxygen deplete within the first, say, four to six hours. Um, and with this, it, it took outside of 36 hours for that oxygen to to finally um, uh, kind of clear out. Uh, and then that was maybe another, it was, what, another 24 hours or so, um, just inside of that maybe, maybe about 18 hours before um, before we saw fermentation activity actually start, um, and saw gas being produced. So it was just kind of interesting to see those things. Like it was obviously a slower moving yeast. It was, and this is without knowing what yeast strain specifically had been used, um, and just looking at the data anonymously, more or less, um, we had seen that, uh, um, uh, the normal hallmarks of of something that you would call an IPA, you know, we were seeing some very different stuff. So.
0: Yeah. Probably didn't match many um, profiles you'd seen on a John's
4: no, no, not at all. Not at all. Yeah. So it was, it, it was, it, it was really fun to look at. And, and then to be able to see on the, you know, on the far end as well, um, to look at that, uh, um, you know, to, to see when they were dry hopping and, um, uh, to be able to note that um, that there was some uh, like that Krausening was going on and um, yeah I just I just kind of seeing all those extra little novel things that Kevin's built into this style at play so that as soon as we were talking about it and as soon as I was hearing what Kevin was describing about it I was like oh yeah yeah everything there it is I can track it along
0: Okay, you've already mentioned that cold IPA gets dry hopped, which makes sense. Tell us a little bit more about when and how.
2: Uh, So it's actually kind of interesting because when we first did this, uh, one of the, you know, we kind of took a feather from what we were doing for Italian pilsner. So with Italian pilsner, we would ferment it to completion, chill it down to, you know, uh, without putting any pressure on it, uh, chill it down to about 45 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, harvest what we wanted to harvest and then we would kreutzen it so we would take um beer like usually Czech pilsner that was at high krausen um a 12 plato beer that might be uh 10 and a half plato at high Kreutzen, and we would you know take a couple barrels out shove it into our um Italian pilsner dry hop it and then ferment it on the dry hops and that's that was a different beer that we made called Terrifica um, so when we started with cold IPA, we were like, "Oh, let's do that same trick." It was a great way of adding hops and then also scrubbing any oxygen that we added, because we have actively fermenting beer that will scrub everything out. You know, it's on a small scale, without a hop cannon or without any other types of uh, fancy things, you know, with a little ten barrel system, it's really hard to introduce hops without introducing a bunch of oxygen as well. So we try to come up with creative ways to do that. Um, we found that with hop creep. Um, with our cold IPA that there was enough fermentation going on that we didn't need to throw some of our, uh, Czech Pilsner that we're always running out of, frankly, um, into it and dry hop at the same time. So we ended up just dry hopping it and it would still re-fermentate the, with the, um, with the hop creep. Yeah, did that answer your question? What was your question?
0: <laughs> yeah, it did. And then I guess um, also too, we didn't really talk too much about the uh, um, hop varieties for dry hopping. Are are these just classic Pacific Northwest hop varieties, or something else? And and then again, how many pounds per barrel for for dry hopping here?
2: Now we did a lot. I'll I'll, I'll have John talk about um, the cold IPA we did with him, which was a little bit different the cold IPA that we do our original cold IPA is more classic so um it's Chinook and Cascade we're trying to get some more classic pine citrus grapefruit kind of thing um there's a bit of Oregon Amarillo too um and uh pretty high uh, dry hopping rate we're doing about two and a half pounds per barrel uh total so it's it's a very it's a lot of hops
0: Okay. And then, John, you have a um, dry hopping unit that grinds your T90s into powder and then recirculates the tank. Um, you've been brewing hoppy beer for over 30 years now. Tell us about how and when you landed on that approach to dry hopping and how it's changed your beers.
3: Gotcha. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we were doing the usual method that a lot of people do is just, you know, get up on top of the tank and dump your hops in and... um and uh, do some purges or some rousing with CO2 to keep the, If, if you know, we don't know what's going to happen to that tank because we can't see in there. So, um, and just uh, every once in a while, we'd get a nucleation blowout, you know, where, um, you know, the hops before you could get the, get the you know, PRV back on the um, hops are exploding out of the tank. And uh, we had a couple instances um, where I was just like, this is not, this is not the way we should be doing this, you know, So, for safety sake, for a safety standpoint. So, um... We got a whole podcast episode about that. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. um... So, um, we trialed a few different, um, of these dry hopping units. Um, you know, you know the, the notorious Sierra and about a torpedo, which is designed for uh, whole leaf hops. Um, we didn't try that one, but just looked around and, uh, we found this unit. Um, we'll trial two different units on, under the Amco name, um actually it's Rolex name. I think it's Rolex, actually. But produced by Amco. But um we settled on a very you know a very simple system of just you know a hopper with um CO two gas going in uh, as the hops go in and then we we're able to uh just you know really effectively dry hop a tank um you know and basically, basically we'll load the hops and then recirculate for roughly uh 10 minutes for every uh 10 you know 15 barrels so it's like a 30 minute research on a 90 barrel tank something like that and um we get really effective results and uh, really feel like we're actually using all of the hops versus just part of the hops because sometimes you after a dry hop beer you clean the tank out and you open up and then some you know pellets would just fall right out you're like oh that was wasted hops so um so we found this system to be really effective for us and. Um, much safer than climbing up on top of a tank. So we have ninety barrel tanks now, so they're they're they're, they're, what, they're over twenty feet tall. So you know you're you're up there on a lift, and just, I just uh, safety and efficiency was really the reason we switched to it.
0: Cool. So I assume this this cold IPA collaboration brew that you did, you, it was dry hopped with that that method as well. I assume, right?
3: Yeah, we use that method. Yeah.
0: Okay. So. Um, uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Did you also use um, sort of some classic Pacific Northwest varieties um, like Kevin's doing, or did you do something different?
3: Uh, no, we went actually th- the sideways on this one. Um, we uh, ended up using uh, Talus, which is a newer uh, hop variety now here in uh, you know, here in America. And then we also used a newer uh, New Zealand hop variety called Pacific Sunrise, um, and we, anyway, a little Centennial just to kind of for the old school. Uh, West Coast IPA, which was Centennial was very prominent in. Um I'm looking I'm trying to get the pounds for barrel just a second here. See so it's uh yeah, three and a quarter pounds for barrel dry hop with those varieties. And um we ended up using a little bit of citra after we did the tested tasted the pilot brew. Uh me and Kevin and Phil, our pilot brewer here. Um we were uh Drinking the beer, we kind of went, to use a little citra, you know? And it actually, we ended up putting that in and just gave that nice little pop to the beer. Uh, very little citra compared to the other two, three varieties, but uh, just an old enough in that hop blend just to kind of accent the different flavors we're looking for. So it's kind of a New Zealand meets, meets New School with the talus. And then you got the Centennial Classic um, basket up. So it's kind of a, I guess, a multi generational, <laughs> uh, as far as ages and you know, origin of pops, um, dry hop on this one.
0: All right. Cool. Um, okay. So cold, uh, cold IPA should be filtered bright. Do you also use any finings or anything else for stability or do you filter both of these beers or what?
2: Uh, well, we, we filter everything. Um, we're, we're a pretty small brewery. So all we really have is a plate and frame filter to get, it to, uh, to be clear. I believe, um, John, did you end up just using finings or, or centrifuge?
3: Yeah, we just centrifuged it um, really kind of at a slower rate to get uh, the clar- more clarity. Um, and proceeded to get a really nice clear product with that, uh, just a GEA centrifuge. But we didn't do any biofine or any other um, additions to help with that.
2: We use a we use a silica sol in our dry hopped beers to um, get the polyphenol load low. I believe it's the polyphenol or maybe protein. I can't remember if it's silica or PVPP. Which one affects which? But um, we use silica sol to um, to get it to go through our filter well. But we do filter this one to brightness. Um, I think it's pretty appealing. I mean, that's part of our whole like trying to make it the antithesis of the hazy ipa is that like i know that like the hazy ipas are so instagrammable but some people i i I feel like there's this magic uh beer customer out there that might resemble myself but um sits at the bar and really (laughs) just wants a crystal clear ipa that's hoppy and delicious and that was really what i was going for so yeah we 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 filter it to, to brightness brilliant
0: All right, Uh, talk about the stability of these beers. Um, John mentioned earlier that, you know, he was successful with uh, getting an award for one that had been, um, you know, been packaged quite some time ago. I'm guessing, I mean, it would make sense that these beers are gonna hold up a lot better than all these hazy IPAs out there, right?
2: You know, it's kind of interesting because when we were opening Wayfinder, uh we did collabs with, I think the number was like we did like 29 collabs with lots of local uh uh brewers. And we did one with fatheads before Von Ebert, um before Fatheads became Von Ebert. When uh Mike Hunsaker was there at and now he started Grains of Wrath. But we did this beer with him and it was more of an IPL, like a double IPL. And um I gotta say that like both of us were like that beer lasted for like four, five, six months and still had an amazing hop aroma and we were trying to chalk that up to something um it's very interesting that you know with uh, the cold IPA at, at uh, the ecliptic one that it still had great hop aroma 4 months later i think that there is something to do with um a lower and slower fermentation um not really blowing off a lot and then just gentle handling um I think that there there might be something there. I I don't want to say it out loud, but I want to say that um, the yeast is going to throw a little bit more SO2, and the SO2 is probably going to keep the oxidation down as well.
0: Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with you on that. I've definitely seen Hop Aroma um, have way more longevity and, you know, Check Pilsners and, and beers like that, um, versus the, uh, IPA counterparts, um, in my experience. So I, I tend to agree with, with, with that, that theory. What about, what about pH? Is the finished uh, beer pH on the high side, like it is in a lot of old school American IPAs, or do you do any extra acidification to offset that?
2: I mean, sadly, yeah, with the dry hop load that we're doing, um, it, it does, um, the pH is somewhere in the, uh, uh, preferably not, not above four, six, but you know, I, I can admit sometimes it goes there. I shouldn't, I shouldn't want to admit that, but, um, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll end up, we acidify with just, um, the old lager trick of using acidulated malt. And then, um, we have really, really soft water here in Portland. So we end up having to add calcium back, usually through calcium sulfate. Um, but yeah, our pHs are pretty stable. Uh, Final pH, uh, the final work pH is usually 5.2 to 5.1 going to the tank. Um, It probably drops down to 4.3 before dry hop um, in the fermenter. Yep. All right. So pretty standard.
4: Yeah, and I can actually, uh, I don't mean to interrupt, but I can actually note that that what we saw um, when we were tracking not just pH, but conductivity, on the collaboration beer um that was another way that it was we noted the the difference between you know this and and kind of a standard IPA was um you normally we're looking at IPAs usually in the like 2500 microsiemens per centimeter on a conductivity scale um and this was this started out you know closer to about uh 2000 um so not quite down as low as like a you know a full on um, uh, Pilsner, um, you know, not that uh, super soft water, but not quite as hard as, as what you would get from like a standard
2: IPA. So,
0: Is there anything else unique to the process of brewing cold IPA that we haven't discussed? Uh, did I miss anything?
2: Uh, one of the things I wanted to mention is that uh, although we're doing cereal, and I, maybe if you want to put this at the beginning, I don't know. Um, when we're doing cereal mashing, I think maybe some people just turned off the podcast like, well, I can't do it. Forget about it. Um, single infusion mashed done, I would su- I would suggest a flaked corn product. I think it works great. Um, there are a lot of companies that make it. Um, I would be. I would. If you're going to use a flaked rice product, I would um use a lot of iodine, make sure that it is converting. But also um using syrups works pretty well. Uh we were getting rice syrup as um from a from a manufacturer, and that's worked pretty well. The the biggest difference is that adjuncts themselves, I think that the rhetoric that brewers and the brewers association and people like us in craft beer have been saying for all these years is that, you know. All malt beer is delicious. That's what we should be making. Corn and rice just bring boring old starch to the table and nothing else, you know. And that's frankly just not true. Um, If you look at a breakdown of rice or corn, there's proteins, there's gum, there's beta glucan, there's starch, there's, you know, it's going to add complex B dextrin, stuff like that. It's not just a source of starch. Um, And
0: if anybody still thinks that they need to go back and listen to the episodes we've done with Greg Casey.
2: Yeah, Um, well, actually, I need to go back and talk. Uh, Me, I reached out to Greg about this whole thing. I actually reached out. I'm friends with his son, Troy. And I'm like, hey, can I talk to your dad about (laughs) adjunct brewing when we were doing this? And we spent a bunch of emails back and forth and some time on the phone about it, because I think we're both on the same platform that, you know, hey, barley isn't that much different than corn you know, not that much different than rice, not that much different than Sorg and, and places all around the world are making adjunct beers because they have to and there's nothing wrong with it and that we need to um, turn off that part of our brain. But yeah, it's um, not a crime. if you are going to use a more processed um, sugar like Dextrose, I would suggest lowering the total amount because Dextrose is a processed um, starch. So it is just, you know, if if you look at the COA on that, it's far different than a raw product. If you can use a raw product, you're going to have more of a, you're going to have more contribution to mouthfeel and flavor. Whereas if you use a more processed ingredient, you're going to use, it's going to pretty much offer nothing but
3: fermentability. Yeah. Dextrose and flake corn are, those are two different animals really, in yeah. my opinion. You know, yeah. the corn may be the base, but I think that your point Kevin, just that there's a lot of flavor. Um that comes from these adjuncts you know and especially corn And i felt like you know this beer the collab beer we did was, you know it had a real delightful just mouthfeel and flavor and i think the corn really separated it from uh, you know normal ipa um you mentioned earlier about um what does that beer taste like coming out of the high gravity tank at a budweiser plant well i did get a chance to actually at one point in my career to get a tour at a bud plant where i actually was able to convince um the brewmaster to give me a, give us all a sample of high you know 18 plate of budweiser and i tell you it was a pretty good damn good Bach beer let's leave it right there
2: yeah, yeah. that's that's that was that's a great i i'm really interested in that i kind of want to brew
3: one yeah, yeah. um there were collab you know was eight percent here so uh yeah we definitely pushed it up <laughs> you know, bang for your buck but also but that, that, I think that uh, extra alcohol we had here also helped with the uh, aging of the beer too The stability
2: yeah I think that yeah I think that's a big deal um, and part of this is like when, when I was thinking about West Coast IPA my first thought you know when I was homebrewing which was you know 15 years ago or more um, I'm thinking of Russian River and talking to Vinny um, at least Back then he was like, well, part of part of what makes this so drinkable is a bit of dextrose. And that was kind of mind-blowing for us back then. We're like, why would you add dextrose to? And then we did. And we're like, oh yeah, it totally makes sense. (laughs) So I I suggest using different types of adjuncts to get different types of mouthfeel and stuff like that. I think that there has been a I think that New England IPA in particular was a backlash against sweeter caramel malt forward um ipas and double ipas especially after they aged and all you can really taste is like this oxidized crystal malt and some of those like candy like hops and it tastes more like a barley wine than it really tasted like an ipa and people kind of got sick of that um and so this is us saying well it doesn't have to be that way west coast doesn't have to be that way
0: Alright, cool. John John, just curious, have you continued brewing more cold IPA since this uh collaboration or was that was that
3: enough for you? <laughs> um honestly we haven't, but uh no, it wasn't enough for me. I mean, like I said we're gonna do it again with Kevin, but um we we have a an IPA series called Vega that we rotate different um make it can be a hazy, non hazy, but we're gonna definitely drop a cold version of that. Um not in the next batch, but the batch after. So um, we'll, cool. we'll be doing that again, but I think it's I think it's a fun style, kind of like uh, like Kevin mentioned earlier, Italian pilsner, just some of these other ways to, you know, get that dry hop character in a different style, and just have it really present differently. I think it's really a lot of fun. Well, I'm inspired. I'm going to brew one now. So <laughs> nice. you me. I think that
2: if I can say one more thing, John, I'm sorry. I'm just keep on loading up no, on the good. microphone. Uh, I think a lot of people had, especially when we saw the backlash, uh, on, um, some of the pod, um, uh, sorry. It's on the blogs. You saw people that like, just really hated the term cold IPA. And I wanted to address that and say, like, um, the reason we called it cold, yeah, too bad for one <laughs> thing. Uh, we're calling it cold IPA because your customers will understand what it is if you call it cold IPA. It doesn't really—I don't really care about the BJCP judges who are like, well, you I know, think I think I you know, the when, when you're seeing hazy IPA or fruit forward or juicy IPA on a menu, you know, I think that that tells people what that's going to be, and if you write cold IPA on a menu. Um, without any prior knowledge, somebody goes, okay, this is going to be a crisp, easy drinking, clean IPA. Yeah. And uh, that's the whole point.
0: That was Kevin Davey, John Harrison, Andy Morrison here on the Master Brewers podcast. If you don't feel like you now have everything you need to know to brew some cold IPA check the show notes for a direct link to the master brewers webinar these guys did in July or head on over to community.mbaa.com and post your questions to ask the brewmasters the world's best technical brewing forum are you enjoying the master brewers podcast let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more take a minute to thank our sponsors there's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. I hope you'll join me on Thursday, October 28th in Cleveland for a live version of Ask the Brewmasters. Panelists include Soon-to-Be Master Brewers President Andy Tavikram from Market Garden Breweries, Travis Audette from Anheuser Busch InBev, and Vinny Cholerzo from Russian River. If you haven't already registered for the conference, use the link in the show notes to register now. I can't get stuck and can't